0: I'm going to open up my sermon with a story that's going to kind of serve as an umbrella over the course of this entire message. So in the year 1555 in the country of England, there was a little girl named Rose Munt. Now Rose Munt and her family were all sleeping soundly in their beds one night and a little past two in the morning they got a knock at their door and they were awakened by the sound of chaoticness going around outside their house. So Rose's father quickly arose from her, his bed and opened the door and what he saw was the sheriff of the town that they had currently lived in and behind the sheriff stood an angry mob wielding pitchforks and torches and swords and they were demanding for Rose and her family's heads So at this time in England, Christianity was outlawed. It was illegal. You could not be a Christian at this time as ordered by the king. And Rose and her family had been operating and running an underground theology church type thing. And they had over 50 attendees at the time. And they were quickly growing and adding new members by the day. Now, they were quickly captured by the authorities. And Rose and her family were stripped from their homes and brought in front of a judge and the judge asked Rose this little girl who was about 15 years old he asked what would you like to do what would you like me to do to you and your family Rose they had captured 16 members of their church as well and Rose looked at the judge and says to quote Paul the Apostle for me to die is Christ and to live is gain my judge you can do with me whatever you see fit so Rose and her family were sentenced to death and death in England was not something that we have today, just stick in the arm and you're gone. It was more so, I'm going to cut your head off, cut you in half type stuff. So they're ordered to be burned at the stake alive, her, family, her entire family and the 16 members of their church. And they're burned in the middle of England in the town and over 250 people had gathered around to witness this, people who stood against Christianity as well, and there's tons of witnesses' accounts who say as the fire had begun to reach the skin and the flesh of Rose and her family, they began to sing out in psalms, praising God for the glory that they had, and crying tears of joy, and some were even seen laughing and thanking the Lord, thanking them for the Hurt that they had experienced, and some even accounted saying that they felt like the fire didn't even touch the skin, but Rose and her family were killed and buried in England. Now, I got this story from a book called Jesus Freaks. It's written by DC Talk, if you guys remember that old school worship band, and it's a book of martyrs, and a martyr is someone who dies trying to defend their faith in Christianity, now, today's sermon is not about how I want you to fly to Pakistan and stare down the barrel of a gun and declare your salvation. Now, those things would be awesome if you did do that, but today is more about the relationship and our approach to Jesus. How do we have a relationship like Rose and her family or the other martyrs or the disciples who were killed in the Bible? Um, Is our relationship with Jesus a relationship that we hold dear, or is our relationship more so a requirement? And I hope the Lord will allow me to guide you through this question, and we're going to be in John chapter 3 today, like Sheila read for us today, so if you want to turn your Bibles there. So in order to fully understand the magnitude of Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, we need to understand a little bit more about the book of John as a whole. So... I go to a Christian college. I've been learning a whole bunch of stuff about the Bible, so forgive me as I nerd out for a little bit and explain the context of the book of John. So we all know the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but there's another set of Gospels called the Synoptic Gospels. So how many of you know what the Synoptic Gospels are? Raise your hand. Okay, a couple of us. Brad, I knew you would. <laughs> but, um, so the Synoptic Gospels, the word synoptic comes from the Greek words synopsis, which basically means synopsis, which means to summarize or survey something. So there are three synoptic gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they are called the synoptic gospels because they possess many of the same stories in a similar order with a similar message. So if you don't know, Mark was the first book of the Bible written, Matthew's first, but Mark was written first. And a lot of scholars believe that Mark helped write Matthew and Matthew helped write luke and then or some believe that mark helped write matthew and luke or some believe that there is another gospel that we don't know about where matthew mark and luke all pulled from so all three matthew mark and luke all have a similar message and story but john is very different than the synoptic gospels that's why he's left out the way john approaches the character of jesus is different from the synoptic authors and a great summary of this is found in John 20:31, where John says, But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So John tend to focus more on the Messiahship of Jesus and how he was truly the Son of God and how he didn't shy away from parading the power of Jesus throughout the entirety of John's gospel and show Jesus's controversy that he caused with the religious leaders at the time. And John was very emphasized on the redemptive work that Jesus did and how it can affect your life every single day forever. Now not to say that other gospels didn't believe these things, but John was a lot more upfront about it and unique. So we have chapters 2 through 10, where John strictly focuses on the miracles of Jesus that he performed. and Then we have the raising of Lazarus from the dead in 11, which is the most evident display of Jesus' power, and then the death and the resurrection. But right in the middle of the first half, we have this story about Jesus' conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Now, the story is kind of jagged. It doesn't really fit in with the rest because we're talking about the miracles of Jesus at this point. And it doesn't really fit with the miracle because Jesus doesn't heal anyone or do anything miraculous physically to somebody like he would if he was healing them of their blindness or their leprosy. And he doesn't do anything controversial. All he does is talk to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus walks away, and we have no record of it causing anything super controversial, but... I want to try to communicate to you that this conversation is one of the most healing, most fruitful, and most important stories in all of Scripture and one that we should study and learn every moment we get because it is so important. Because the conversation Nicodemus has with Jesus is not just unique to Nicodemus. The story and conversation Nicodemus has with Jesus is the relationship that most Christians have with Jesus. Jesus. So I'm going to look at the first text in verse 1, if you want to follow along. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evident that God is with you. So here from the very beginning, we have this theme of hesitancy from Nicodemus and a little couple chapters earlier we just witnessed Jesus crack up a whip and go to town in the Jewish temple tearing up the marketplace saying you will not make my father's house a point of sale. So Nicodemus has just witnessed this happen because the religious leaders were there, and if he wasn't there he definitely heard about it because Jesus was very much talked about at this time considering the miracles that he was performing. So Because of who Nicodemus is, he has to approach Jesus at night. And he approaches Jesus at night out of fear of abandonment of the religious people he had in his life. He was embarrassed to approach Jesus because of who he was. So he also addresses Jesus as rabbi. And Nicodemus, this means teacher, And Nicodemus does this because he does not see Jesus as the son of God. He doesn't see him as the Messiah at this point in his life. He sees him as nothing more than a reflection of himself, as a little, nothing more than a Pharisee with a little weird teachings. So he approaches him and calls him rabbi because he believes that Jesus is just another scripture teacher like himself. And this brings me to my first point, which is we are hesitant to go all in without knowing the ins and outs, especially in our Christianity. And the way we can approach this is by getting closer to Jesus. So what does Nicodemus do? He's hesitant to understand. He's hesitant to know. So he approaches Jesus. He gets closer to Jesus and has a conversation with him. So in the United States, we live a life of comfort. We have countless forms of entertainment right at our fingertips. We have money that can be made, dreams that can be accomplished, sports that we can enjoy, movies, music, television, video games, you name it, we've got it. Now, don't get me wrong. All those things are good things, and I enjoy them all. But much like this life of Nicodemus, when we let those, are those things causing us to view Jesus from a distance instead of up close? Are they withholding us from allowing to step into Jesus' life and have a conversation with him? You see, Nicodemus is a prime example of living in comfort. So most Pharisees, especially high up ones like Nicodemus, lived a life of comfort. Pharisees were highly respected not just among the jewish people but above the roman people as well and everyone in that day and time by this time nicodemus would have already had the entirety of the old testament memorized because being a pharisee was not something that you just fall into it's something you pursue from a young age you don't just get a college degree and become a pharisee it's not how that works you have to say you're going to be a pharisee from the young age and then the first thing they tell you to do is, okay, you want to become a Pharisee? All you have to do is remember the Old Testament laws. And at first glance, that seems easy. I mean, Ten, ten Commandments, that's it, right? That's, that's all the laws we have to follow. But Deuteronomy and Leviticus would say otherwise. Over 600 laws that they would have to follow and he would have been trained in this life as a young child. And then after that, he would have had to memorize the entirety of the Old Testament, which literally sounds impossible to me. I don't know about you. The book of Psalms has over 100 chapters in it alone. I mean, give me the book of, like, Obadiah, and we're good. That's like 10 verses. So, I mean, I can memorize that easy. But the entirety of the Old Testament, that's, that seems pretty tough. Um, so after all this, after memorizing everything, then Nicodemus would have to approach the Pharisee religious leaders and ask to be a follower he was not a Pharisee yet, and he would have to wait until another Pharisee died so a, a follower could become a Pharisee, and then the Pharisee would choose more followers, and then when that guy died, then they would step in. It's a long and tedious process. So I say all that to say Nicodemus has been cultivating this life of lukewarmness since he was a child. He's been following in lukewarmness ever since he was a kid. And they were highly educated, highly educated. They had a lot of money, they influenced the people, they influenced political spectrums, they influenced everything. So Nicodemus is approaching Jesus with a phrase of lukewarmness to understand what Jesus is going for. So let's look at how Jesus responds to this in verse 3. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. So, Jesus does not beat around the bush. He comes straight for Nicodemus' religious spirit. And Nicodemus is clearly seeking instruction from Jesus in the way of life. So, Jesus gives it to him. He says in one, in one sentence, he sweeps Nicodemus' com, belief completely off its footing. And Nicodemus hasn't even asked Jesus really a single question. Yet, Jesus answers the question as burning most deeply in Nicodemus' heart, which is, you must be born again in order to follow me. Jesus communicates. So Nicodemus is immediately dumbfounded and lost, and he has no idea what to say. So this brings my second point, which is the gospel can sometimes sound too good to be true. So Nicodemus is floored by Jesus's response, because he's been spending his entire life trying to earn the favor of God to be brought into paradise. And until this moment, he thought he had the green light he thought he was perfect in god's eyes he was going to be on a first class trip to heaven he's going to be riding the golden chariot up above the clouds and now jesus is telling me i have to do something else in order to earn god's favor that's impossible this man cannot be the messiah so we see this cumulative form of hesitancy in nicodemus and this sounds like a lot of us right so god i've been going to church my entire life i can quote john 3:16 perfectly I was baptized at eight years old in Sunday school. I haven't been that bad, God. Sure, I drink a little bit here and do some bad things there, but I'm not that bad, God. I'm a good overall person, right? And I'm definitely not as bad as this person or that person or my other fellow neighbor. I'm not as bad as them, God. At least I go to church. I have the books of the Bible memorized. I have done my best, Jesus. What more could you possibly want from me? You see, this is the evidence of a required relationship with Jesus a lot of us have a required relationship with Jesus Jesus if I do these things you'll grant me access into heaven right Jesus I'm not going to bend my back for you I'm not going to stretch backwards but if I just follow your command and go to church every once in a while then maybe you'll let me into heaven right Jesus you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours The problem is when we approach Jesus with a required relationship instead of a genuine relationship, we start guiding the path towards our salvation instead of letting Jesus guide the path for us. We begin to drive the car. We begin to put Jesus in the back seat and say, I'm going to take the wheel. I know what I'm doing. You can just sit back and relax. But it's impossible to do that because our salvation cannot stand on that without Jesus. We need him to guide us. So Jesus is very clear about what this means. Just as you can't explain where the wind comes from, you can't even have a genuine relationship with Jesus without the Holy Spirit. It changes everything, every aspect of who we are, everything about our character, everything that makes us, us. And the reason we're so quick to rely on a requirement instead of a relationship is because it makes it easy to blame someone else when everything goes wrong. If you're seeking a required relationship, the moment that something goes wrong in your life or you give in to something, then you point your finger at God and say, God, I've been doing this. God, I've been following this X, Y, Z law. I've been doing all the things right. Why is this happening to me? Why are you doing this? It makes it so easy to turn your back and bail completely because you, you don't know what a genuine relationship feels like because a required relationship means you stay and live in your comfort alone a relationship that's genuine means you leave your comfort zone and develop a relationship that exceeds your expectations within within a required relationship we guide the path to our salvation using our own lukewarmness as the scale We're going to move at our own pace. We're going to take steps the way we want to. Jesus is going to throw us right in. I'm sure you all have stories of that. Jesus throwing you right in and saying, we're going to do this. But requirements don't cause you leaving the comfort zone. So that's how Jesus replies here. So this leaves us in this weird middle zone. And I wish that I could say the specific part of Scripture, Nicodemus' story, ended in him turning his life to Jesus and getting on his knees and declaring him the Messiah, but it's not at all what happens. We have G- Nicodemus walks away from the relationship right back into the comfort that he has been used to. And this is because the work of Christ is a continuous heart process in our lives. Although Nicodemus' life was changed by this conversation, he was met between this weird crossroads between two things, Christ and comfort. And it's hard because the road to comfort looks really, really good. We can reside in that. I mean, it brings us joy. Sports, awesome, comforting, feel good. Our wife, our kids, they're comforting. They bring us joy and fulfill us for a limited time. Money, our job, what we do for a living, all those things are down the path of comfort. And the path for Christ looks jagged and messed up and small and hard to navigate. And so most of us, like Nicodemus, decide instead to just choose the path of comfort because it's all we know. So the next time we see Nicodemus, we can see this heart change begin to happen in him over the course of time and how we can tell he kind of pondered these things Jesus said over a long course of time. So the next time we see Jesus, or the next time we see Nicodemus and Jesus together is in court. And now this trial is different from the crucifixion trial. So... Jesus is brought, and the Jewish leaders are like, hey, we're going to kill you if you keep doing all, saying all this stuff. And Jesus is like, well, I am the Son of God, so you better believe me. Whatever his typical revolting <laughs> attitude. Um, and Nicodemus stands up, and he's like, guys, should we not give this man a fair trial? Is everyone not meant for a fair trial? And his religious leaders look at him, and they say, are you from Galilee as well? Now, during this time, being from Galilee was shameful. You did not want to be labeled as from Galilee. And so Nicodemus becomes embarrassed of his faith. He becomes embarrassed of the heart work that Jesus is doing in him. And this is really evident for a lot of people because sometimes it's hard to communicate that we're Christians because we're afraid of what people will say to shame us or condemn us. I mean, I know for most of my life when I've been working, sometimes... Especially a long time ago, when I would hesitate to tell my coworkers that I was Christian out of fear of what they would say or tell people that I was a Christian because I didn't want them judging me or standing against me. Um, so I totally relate to Nicodemus here. So then the next time we see Nicodemus is during the trial of the crucifixion of Jesus. And in a moment of desperation, Nicodemus votes in order to send Jesus to the cross. So you see. Jesus was a very prominent figure during this time, so all the religious leaders would have been present during his trial, and especially during his crucifixion, because they wanted him dead. So when Pilate stands on the stage and says, what shall I do with this man, the religious leaders voted, and they declared that he should be crucified and killed. And most of the time, religious leaders all agreed. There wasn't a lot of Headbutting during this time there was sadducees and there was pharisees pharisees agreed with pharisees sadducees agreed with sadducees and there wasn't a lot of debate so nicodemus votes in order to send jesus to the cross for death and this is evidence of our comfort and required relationship with christ can eventually cause us to turn our backs on him completely and send him to the cross without ever looking back We can't view Jesus from a distance because we won't have the strength to stand when hard times come. When the stuff hits the fan and we have to make a decision, if we don't know a personal relationship with Christ, we will crack and break under pressure. We cannot do it without him. So how do we bridge this gap between requirement and relationship? So Jesus makes it very clear back in John 3 with his response to Nicodemus. In verse 11, Jesus says, You are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things. I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about about earthly things, how can you possibly believe me if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. So the bronze snake that Jesus is referring to here is a story of the Israelites in the wilderness in the book of Numbers. So the Israelites had just been rescued from Egypt and they're complaining to Moses, it's too hot, it's too, we're too hungry, we're too thirsty. Why did you bring us out of Egypt just to kill us? And they kept on wishing and praying that they were back in Egypt. So God sends out these snakes and the snakes go out and they bite the people and they poison them, and then God gives Moses this staff with a snake's head on it, and He says, "Anyone who looks at this snake statue will be instantly healed." Um. So what we see here is that the Israelites were wishing that they were back in Egypt, and they want to reside in the place that brought them hurt and discomfort. And they complained about it, and this brought them death for some of them who refused to keep their eyes up and look at the statue that was raised above them. So Jesus is making it very clear, in order to heal from the things that you have walked through, in order to be born again, you must keep your eyes upon me, upon the Son of God, and follow my commands. So Nicodemus is floored by this response, not understanding what Jesus means, but he soon would. So in John nineteen thirty-eight. Nicodemus and Joseph another Jewish leader take Jesus's body after the crucifixion from Pilate and bury him in a tomb where he would rise from eventually and it says something a little detail that can be missed and not talked about but I think it is so important so in this chapter it says Nicodemus is carrying something with him and it says Nicodemus is carrying 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes Now, you're probably thinking that means nothing, but this is something that's so simple that can change the course of a life. You see, in the Jewish market, a spice like myrrh was very, very important and used for all types of rituals during that time for dead people to be buried with. So it was a very abundant spice that people came across. I mean, it's like milk today. You get tons of gallons of milk. But in order to acquire these 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, Nicodemus had to make a public confession of who he was, why he was buying the spice, and the purpose he had. And these markets were oftentimes ran by the religious leaders in order to get money formed into their synagogues. And so Nicodemus comes to these religious leaders and makes a public confession, confessing what he's using this for. And he. It had to be checked by the religious leaders back at that time. They used that in order to avoid people selling it behind their backs. And this is such a subtle detail and is so important because until this moment, Nicodemus swayed in his questions and doubts. He cast a vote for a man he believed to be innocent. But after the moment Jesus was killed, Nicodemus finally understood who he was. It took him keeping his eyes and literally looking up at Jesus on the cross until he finally understood and decided, I'm going to make a public confession towards who Jesus is and what he's done for me. He understood in John 3.16 to the fullest extent, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whomever believed in him shall not die shall not perish, but have eternal life. He finally understood that Jesus was the man that they were talking about in John 3.16. Jesus was the son. He was the man, the savior he had talked about in their conversation. Jesus was the one and only son that was sent for whom whoever believes in him shall not perish, and he was supposed to keep his eyes upon him. He makes a public confession. He's not embarrassed. He stands confident in who he is, and he's makes a public confession in front of people who would judge him completely. Now we have no record of Nicodemus or Jesus appearing to Nicodemus after this, after his resurrection, but we do have evidence of Nicodemus going to Rome and being martyred for his faith while sharing the gospel. Now the story of Nicodemus is so relatable for me personally, and I'm sure it is for so many of you, because I know so many of you, like me, have lived a life of a Pharisee. And you've lived your life following the footsteps of what you're supposed to do, viewing Jesus from a distance and not wanting him to intervene in too much. Like, Jesus, I've got control of these things. You stay in your lane. I'll stay in mine. Maybe one day we can meet in paradise. And I know there's a lot of you like that, and that's the path you're currently on. You're looking at your whirlwind of a life and wondering how you've gotten here. Maybe you've fallen back into a sin you thought you had beaten. Maybe your marriage is struggling. Your health is struggling. Your trust issues are evolving and making you feel not loved by God and there's a simple solution to realign and get on the path of righteousness I wish I had a pill that I could give you to cure everything I wish I had the 100% cure earthly answer but I don't the only answer I have is to keep your eyes on Jesus keep your eyes on Jesus and what he's done when he was physically lifted up on a cross and killed for us Keeping our eyes on Jesus changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. we see Jesus has risen from the dead, it transforms our life. The resurrection turned Nicodemus from a Pharisee into a preacher of the word. It changed Peter from a denier to a disciple. It changed, it changed Paul from a murderer to a missionary. And it turned someone like me from a broken church kid who had a lot of bitterness towards his father who felt lonely and depressed and nowhere to go and nowhere to turn. It turned my heart, realigned my heart towards what was best for me, the Son of God. It reminded me of who I am, that I'm not worthless, not nothing, not broken, not defined by my sins, but defined by his resurrection alone. It turned me from that lonely kid who had nowhere to go, who was stuck in a mindset of a Pharisee, living his life, wondering why God had turned his back on him. It turned me from that into a man who feels loved by the Heavenly Father. And I don't want you to look at me like I have the relationship that you should follow. Jesus is very clear that he is an intimate and personal God. He is following your every footsteps personally for you, and he meets you right where you're at in every moment. Don't look at me for a relationship that you should have. Look at Jesus for the relationship you have. My heart longs for everyone in this congregation I don't want you guys to die the poison the enemy is going to try to trap you with if you continue down a relationship of requirements. Look up. Look up at the snake. Look up at the healing. Look up at the cross, and it will change everything. All you need to do is look up, look ahead, and when you can't, when you fall, when you feel weak, you keep your eyes on Jesus and he will carry you. There will be times, I promise you, where you feel as if you cannot take another step in your salvation without collapsing, and that's the exact moment where Jesus' power reaches us. I was reading a book, and there's a quote in that book, and it says that our resume of sins is exactly what Acquires us for God's love. And I think that is just so beautiful that our resume of wrongdoings is what exactly where Jesus wants us, where he carries us on our weakness. Even when the vote was cast, we cast a vote against him time and time again, he will gladly take the cross up for you time and time again. He died for your sins, not just mine, not just those around you, but you and your personal sins. And I. See the story, I relate to the story of the prodigal son a lot. It's been really evidence in my life because if you look at the story of the prodigal son, the son grew up in the house. He had lived in the house, he had lived in the comfort, he had lived in everything, and he still decided it wasn't good enough. He decided instead to turn his back on his father, turn his back on the comfort, and take the inheritance. Now, inheritance comes from death. Meaning, he wanted money that had came from death. He wanted satisfaction of things that were deadly, that would kill him. And eventually it did. He was covered in pig mud and was looking at his life and wondering where he was. And he decides to go home. I think it's so beautiful in the story of the prodigal son, where um, the prodigal son reaches the outskirts of his home and his father looks at him, And he sees him and he doesn't stand in the doorway waiting on him to reach him. He doesn't stand at the church waiting for him to reach him. He goes out. He runs after him and chases him down and embraces him and calls him his son in whom he is well pleased and loves him for who he is in that moment. And the son is embarrassed. He doesn't know where to turn. He doesn't know what to do. But he doesn't care about where he's came from. He cares about where he's going. The son kept his eyes on the father and that's exactly what I want for you guys. When times are tough, I just want you to learn to keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on him at all times when things are good, when things are bad. I'm speaking from personal experience and things I've walked to. If you cannot keep your eyes on Jesus, it will not be enough. You, we have to look forward to what Jesus has brought for us. And that's all I want for you guys in this congregation. I love you guys dearly. You guys know how important you have been in my life. I was baptized here when I was 17 years old and had my life radically transformed. I mean, I've grown up in church my entire life, but that didn't stop the devil from harboring a heart of bitterness towards the church. And somehow he saved a little man like me and turned me into something I'm proud to be, a son of God. And that's all I want for you guys, is to keep your eyes on Jesus and all the things that he has for you.